millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I was noticing on social media this week that you were all kind of putting up these candid sort of posts where you were speaking a little bit about things that were important to you ahead of the album coming out on Friday and you put up your post on Monday where you talked about how it's very easy to get caught up in the momentum of things and the flow of things and not quite take stock of maybe moments that should be achievements and should be quite important but not really fully appreciating them when you're in that present moment. Was this a recent revelation for you and if so what kind of was there an experience that kind of prompted this thought pattern? Well, it's just, I definitely think on, like, in the lead up to the album, you kind of, like, everything, especially social media, you try and paint this image of being, like, too cool for school and, like, you kind of make this persona around about yourself that you can't actually be vulnerable. And then just to actually stop and think and be, like, actually, like, it's maybe time to be, you know, like, really genuine with your message and just let people know, like, see a bit behind the scenes and, and what you actually think. And I think just for us, just putting these kind of posts up and just taking time to stop and think back about how lucky we actually are, it's quite a humbling moment because there's so many people that don't get the chance to do what we're doing at all. And sometimes you can get kind of caught up in the like kind of bullshit to like to kind of be candid about it. Um, and you just never take the chance to actually stop and be like, if my 16-year-old self could see me right now, like it would be like, like, you know, you never... You're never really kind of taught in school like self-belief or like how far you can go. So just taking the time to stop and kind of realise the journey you've actually been on is really important to, to your own personal growth because if you just keep kind of ploughing on, head down, you never get a chance to smell the roses, do you know what I mean? You just kind of, it's always the next goal, the next thing. It, it ruins your sense of achievement 
because you're always just looking for that next big thing. Like it's quite addictive. Like you kind of this, chase that buzz, yeah. Yeah, and you don't even realise you're addicted until you're like deep at like we always kind of got trades and stuff to be like, and we could fall back on, and it would be like a, it would be the backup plan, like if anything like went wrong. And it's like, and then you kind of get a taste of like what's out there, and it becomes this encompassing thing that you just need to keep chasing goals, and you never really believe you're good enough, and you kind of. It's, it's quite a mad, it's definitely a mad place to be. So getting the chance just to sit back and look back and be like, you know what, we actually have, like, we've achieved so much and you never really take time to appreciate that. Can it be hard to see where the line is as well, though, because part of that kind of mindset you've been speaking about there is also probably what's gotten you to where you are now, that drive to kind of keep going forward and keep going on to the next thing? Oh, definitely. It's That's like a, it's a good thing. Like, do you know what I mean? It is a good thing, um, but, like, it's just when you get too wrapped up in it that's when it can be kind of detrimental like what you're trying to do. Like if you never just appreciate how good things are, then you, you can you never really you never <laughs> smile through life. You just you just constantly feel like you're never you're never reaching the height that you want. But ultimately looking back on this process and this record is something that all four of us are like massively proud of. It's like it's been really inspiring to continue with your kind of four mates that you've knew for all your life. Like genuinely I went to nursery with Joe and Jordan and met Jack just before we went to high school. So like we've been like a constant it's almost like we've lived this crazy four way symbiotic <laughs> life. Like we tell stories and uh, you'll be halfway through a story and you'll be like, oh, fuck. No, that was Jordan. That wasn't even me that was in that story, but like you've just <laughs> lived this life. So so getting to do this with them as well is a really and getting to think about that and how lucky we are that a lot of bands don't you know, a lot of bands are like this musicians from here, this musician from there, and they just join together because they're because they're a band. But ultimately, we were like we were best mates, so I, I think that also shines through in the record. I mean, does it make it easier as well to kind of notice, like getting caught up in it? Like, will you have conversations about that in the band? Just having those other individuals there can I help you realise and kind of put things in perspective a bit. Oh, definitely, it keeps you grounded. I think like having like his. Like you can have your mate there, just like stop being a dick. <laughs> like rather, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like rather than than fallouts and stuff. So I definitely think it, it helps keep you kind of in in the moment. How how long ago does kind of twenty sixteen feel now when you put out the first releases? <sighs> oh man, like uh, crazy! <laughs> like I, honestly, I can't believe how fast the times went. Like genuinely, when we done those first Glasgow. Sing for your supper. Those were recorded for a hundred quid each, and our mate um, James Grant at Sweet Wave Audio. <laughs> um, and our mate, honestly, genuinely, hundred quid. It was just our mate Jamie Laverty. He's a wee boy. He's one of our mates' brothers, and then he became one of our best mates. And he kind of put us on to his mate James, and he was like, "Look, boys, you just need to get in, fucking record something." So we're like, "Right, fuck it." We went in, and like, I didn't even have a guitar or bass sorry at the time so I just had to use the guy at the studio's bass and I just went home and bought the same bass <laughs> that he had and I was like I like that so like for there to kind of the stage we're at now in studios it's just it is night and day but like without those without those recordings we'd have never been anywhere near it's, it's crazy what like 200 quid can actually do because those those recordings went on to do like multiple million streams on Spotify and really, like, got us the fan base, got people behind us. It just kind of all kind of started to climb after those releases. So going back as far as that now genuinely feels like a <laughs> lifetime ago because so much has happened in the time. But it is, it's night and day. Yeah, it's in there, you know, about the importance of recording. 
think as well that it kind of shows you the power of the song. You can record something for a hundred quid and it can still have that reach. Oh, 100%. Definitely. And that's kind of obviously like you get quite wrapped up seeing studios like we're like, oh, this one guitar sound or this, oh, this one bass sound or oh, what does that snare sound like? And see in reality, fucking people don't care. <laughs> like if the song's there and the song is strong enough, it'll always shine through. And we're quite guilty sometimes of spending too much time trying to polish something that's already ideal, like it's already kind of where it needs to be. But definitely recording this record, I think we're getting much better at realising that personally because you kind of think, especially see that like the first time you're in a, like a high-end studio, like we were like, so much stuff, like fucking a little bit of keyboards on it, do you know what I mean? Like you're just running about fucking touching stuff and like shaking shakers and like you just Hitting feel the toy shop. Yeah, uh, definitely, mate. And you kind of think all this stuff needs to be on the track. And in reality, you're right. Like if the song's good enough, it'll always shine through. I mean, it's like Don't Forget It Punk, like that's a self-produced one on the record. Well, that's it. Well, Jack, um, Jack has got a great ear and he's really, like, he's got a great vision as well. So that track, it started off, we were in uh, New York, in Brooklyn, with Inflow, uh, producer Inflow. Um, it was quite an emotional experience and there was a lot of, like, like the band getting chucked out the studio and it was just it was kind of always up in the air and we were drinking all it was just a bit fucking carnage and um i was outside in the kind of hall space and they just came out with this kind of chord loop and jack was like spitballing kind of lyrics it's almost like a diss track kind of thing but then it kind of it never really reached the version that we intended at that session so then months passed and we were just in the in, in our own studio in glasgow and we were just trying to find inspiration and find ideas. We, had, we were trying to fire stuff on. And then J- Jack was like, let's record, let's go again and let's record this. It's, do you know what I mean? It's always been niggling at me. And we smashed it down. I think it was one day. I think it took wow. one day recording. And then the rest was in the mix and a master. And that was then, obviously, Jack and our sound tech took care of that. And then it went to another boy for master. And it was just massive. Like, it just sounded ma- like it just sounded like everything the New York session, that song in the New York session should have sounded like. So it was kind of a no-brainer, um, just to get it on, get it, well, get it on the record. It's part of that maybe as well. You know, you're sitting there, he's kind of spitballing ideas on it. Is that about kind of capturing that raw energy and the kind of spark of that moment? Well, that is a like to be honest. When we first met Inflow, we didn't understand the beauty in that, and that's probably why the sessions didn't turn out exactly how we planned because we weren't maybe as open to learning. As we are now, we like because like, we've had a long period of reflection between every session. That you kind of think you've got to fucking smash your record out. It's got to be three weeks. You've got to be like, you know, like fucking Oasis. It's got to be like, boom, boom. Songs are down. Right, release it. Boom, it's out. And in reality, it took us three years. So that reflective period, the seeing the beauty, it just capturing the raw vibe, and and that, like you can put a hundred fucking effects on something but you can never capture that raw vibe unless it's in the moment so it really did highlight to us how important that was even just parts like spitball and lyrics is amazing because it's kind of like it's almost like your little jack is like speaking from his subconscious so it's like just fucking these ideas start coming out that you don't even realize are happening and it's quite a crazy process to be part of and it, especially when we do it in our studio just a case of like, right, right, we need all oh, drums down, and everybody's running over, cables are getting put in. It's like, right, right, the beat's down, right, fuck, right, bass, and then we'll run. It's like everybody's like, from, we don't know how to set nothing up. So it's like <laughs> cables plugging into one place, into another place, just trying to get the fucking sound captured. And it's quite a 
high energy experience and, and it definitely is always captured when you when you work like that it's always captured which is fucking class are you always recording do you always kind of have something running to kind of catch those ideas there was a period that we were all the time but just through the kind of promo cycle we're on the now the room's a bit fucked um we're, we're trying to we've priced up like i know you're, you're in a vocal booth at the minute but we've priced up kind of all the materials to build a vocal booth and kind of a, a drum room so i think we're going to do some work over the next couple of months in the studio and just try and get it to a place that it's totally ready at any point just to kind of practice or capture sounds it's interesting as well that kind of experiences that you've had been able to kind of grab a hold of the raw sound and capture that does that kind of prepare you for reworking or re-recording rather something like glasgow or sing for your supper being able to try and capture the intimacy of that moment well definitely with glasgow i would say we all kind of knew going in that those two tracks were going to be the hardest to crack on the record um we knew how much they meant to fans already and it's quite a fickle thing you're playing with there because when somebody has such an emotional attachment to something, it kind of becomes theirs in a way. So it's like you're kind of trying to redo something that doesn't really belong to you anymore. So we knew that we had to kind of approach those with caution um, and we kind of waited. I think they were the, we'd done a version of Sing For Your Supper in the first Tony Hoffer sessions when we finished the mixtape EP, but it wasn't, wasn't quite there. And then fast forward maybe six months or something and then we done Glasgow again with Tony Hoffer in London and when we cracked Glasgow it was probably the only track in the record that was just us guys in a room four bottles of Buckfast <laughs> plugged in mics everywhere bleed coming for every corner just too, probably too drunk to even be playing well but it was like that is the vibe that is what Glasgow is do you know what I mean it's like a fucking it's such a juxtaposition. There's that like beautiful intro that kind of sets you up, and then there's the explosion when the kick hits, and that energy is just raw buck fast tonic. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, and normally you feed off the crowd though, and it's the crowd that give you that energy, and it's just this like kind of like magical moment where you just feel like the kick kind of slapping, and the crowd just like go up and, it's, and you feel that energy but you try to recreate, recreate that in the studio there was only one thing we could turn to <laughs> um, but I really I really do think we've done done that justice in the record it, it wasn't a track that needed mixed a lot it kind of a few mixes and it was there Jack worked pretty hard on that with Tony Sing For Your Supper was kind of another beast that was um, there's a lot more subtleties in that song it was a bit of to and fro between us the producer Tony the label I think Jack had a bit of a nightmare trying to get it over the finish line, but once it was there, it's like it's quite undeniable. It's got all the kind of raw beauty, the first version, but just a bit more anthemic almost. Like it's kind of like this, you know, it's kind of like with these tracks, they sound the way that you would have recorded them if you had the ability at the time, rather than just throwing stuff at them that, that they didn't need, which, and I think there's an honesty to that. Yeah, it feels like it's got more scope to it and it's just a little bit more difference between where it's at its quietest, most intimate moments and where it's at its biggest kind of towering sheer, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does Glasgow close side one on the record? That is the, on the vinyl. Yeah, so Glasgow's track six, it's 13. I, I, it's either, either that closes it or no place I'd rather go. I was looking at the structure and it's quite interesting that you, I think, or maybe it's not exactly split, but pretty much you begin each side with quite an intimate kind of opening track. Each side is kind of ended with the big kind of classic closer from your history and then there's kind of all the bangers in between. 
At what point did that kind of structure emerge, like during the process for like a stem on the record? Well, that was kind of a bit of to and fro as well. Like you always kind of, you're so used to sculpting sets, like live sets, and you kind of want to take the audience on a journey. So this in itself is kind of like sculpting the same kind of thing, like you're trying to take people on a journey. We talked to it, it started, I remember the discussion. It was really just a shocker. We wanted to kick like... To kind of like, no, like, you know what I mean? We're kind of known for like big bangers up, fucking up in the air songs. So it was just like that for us as well. It was one of the, the first songs I can remember from when we were about maybe 17. It, the first verse was, was kind of penned when we were about 17. And then Jack finished it just this, they sort of just last year when we were recording the record. So it felt like it was almost like a, the, the most fitting track because it had like elements right from our youth and it kind of took us right up to the journey right now and then that's when the album kind of like that's when always it kicks in we always and it's like right, here we are now so we definitely felt with that track we kind of wanted to shock people and kind of throw a bit of a curveball and I've got a cello a cello sorry on the track as well which was pretty fucking cool to almost create a little bit of tension as well like it kind of builds that anticipation yeah definitely it kind of leaves people not not wanting more, but almost like confused. So then when it always kicks, it's just like, here they fucking go. Like, do you know what I mean? Like it's just like a, a total difference sonically and and message. I uh, definitely it builds builds anticipation. Do you think about that a lot when you're kind of working on a record? These kind of moments that are gonna you know punctuate it and kind of hit people and affect them in that way. Well, to be honest, with it, see, just this record being our first record, I think we've thought about everything in like every way you could think of it because like we've, we've been working on this for like I know I've said three years but it's, it is literally your full life like you always say you get your full life to do your first record so like you kind of think of, of these different dynamics all the way through and then you chop and change your ideas and eventually like this record kind of just it went from not being to just being and it was like and there it is and it just was suddenly there and it wasn't like not through wanting hard work and like we grafted and grafted, but it just, you didn't, I don't think we really realised it was there until it was literally there. I know that sounds like such a wanky thing to say, but it genuinely <laughs> it is true. Like it wasn't like we planned it like that, oh, that's definitely for the record, that's definitely for the record. Because especially during with as much period of reflection as well, the lockdown, we were recording and every time you do a new song, you want the new song on the record. So there was a bit of arguing with the label to the point where they were kind of like, look, we need to be, push- this is your debut record, it should be like the best of the snuts, not like the most recent song the snuts have recorded. And it's like, you can't really fucking argue with that, to be fair. Um, but at the same time, like you say, you want it to kind of span the full trajectory. You need to kind of have stuff at this recent end so you can kind of get that full scope to it. Definitely. Well, that's a big thing we kind of, we definitely thought about this through the record we, we did not want this to be an open and closed door in the guitar record that like you know when a band release a record that, that every song is the same and it feels like one kind of body what it is amazing and i love listening to that i like i love the journey of that process but i feel especially with a debut record and especially in 2021 that locks you into a certain kind of style of fan that just kind of want you to release this music and that's the only music you can release and we were very very conscious through the record that we never wanted to be kind of pigeonholed into or all they do is like lad music or all they do is like soppy songs like or even production wise or it's just not i mean it's four, two guitars and a fucking bass and a drum like we really wanted to kind of push ourselves to the point that we maybe even felt uncomfortable at sometimes like fuck have we went too far here but we feel that 
in doing this, it's left the next record and the record after that and anything we do completely open-ended, like we can kind of take it to where, where we want it to go. Ultimately, people, especially in indie music, in guitar music, they, f- they f- take great ownership of a band and the music that they, they, they kind of release. And you can only really release the music that's in your head. And it ch- if it changes, it ch- do you know what I mean? You can't, like, to force yourself into doing a style of music is quite strangling. So we kind of definitely consciously made the decision to just take it as far as we could at any point. If we gain fans, we gain fans. If we lose fans, we lose fans. But no, no risk, no reward, kind of thing. <laughs> if you get what I mean. Yeah, I think it's like that Bowie quote: "Is once you're in, once you feel like you're out in the deep end, that's when you're doing mm-hmm. something right." Oh, definitely. I and some and there's points in the record that that were like, "Is this it? Uh, should we even be here?" Do you know what I mean? Like you feel imposter syndrome quite a lot as well, and you're like, "Like we shouldn't." Like you look at people like David Bowie and fucking the Beatles and. Like, especially, I've watched quite a lot of interviews, especially with Bowie and the Beatles, and they just seem like they're so meant to be there. Like, everything they say seems so wise and spiritual, and, like, <laughs> it's like these guys have, like, a direct fucking core to music. And sometimes you feel definitely that you're out your depth, but, like, they said in that Bowie quote, it's, it is when you're out your depth that you definitely create your most, and especially when you feel vulnerable. You, you, you kind of tap into a place that you didn't even realise you had you had in you um, to create it, which is pretty, pretty special. I sound like a wank. <laughs> I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm going to walk this, I'm going to listen to this back, I'm going to fucking regret saying all that. Charged up on coffee on a fucking Wednesday morning. That's a really interesting idea, though, that kind of feeling of what you're saying there where you didn't know that you had it in you to create that. Do you mm-hmm. remember a moment on the record or a moment when you were recording where you kind of felt that most and it became really apparent to you in the moment that, you were kind of surprising yourself in that way? I would say probably during, I don't know, there's been like lot, probably lots of different points in the records, to be honest. One that I don't know if it, if it really was that or more like it was just kind of surprising on the, on like what if you gave a, like if you gave a producer all the ingredients, what they could throw together too. Like definitely, I would, I would say Coffee and Cigarettes is kind of a song like that that kind of made you realise shit, we can do stuff like this. Do you know what I mean? I, Somebody Loves You as well, to an extent. That was kind of a song that you were like, you never really expected to come out the way it did, and then it kind of did. But going back to Coffee and Cigarettes, that would be, that was the last day we were, we were in my inflow, and it had been an emotional roller coaster. the full fucking... We went for, originally, a week or two weeks. After the first day, he put us all at the studio and told us it wasn't going to work, and we were to just go home. We just, we just took, like, a 12-hour flight to L.A., so we were like, fucking, this was the first time we'd been in a proper studio as well. So it was like, fuck, we fucked this and that. Went home, we went, went back to the hotel and we were fucking depressed. And then Jack got a call asking him to come back in. And then he went back in and it just, it was just this whole, this, the full three weeks and then, we, and then we got kept an extra week and then another extra week. And it just, it just, it was a fucking up and down the full time. And on the last day we went in, Jack got a phone call at like four in the morning from Inflo uh, to write a song like Bob Dylan. So he sat up and just started fucking just writing lyrics. But we, we got called out of the studio and our flight was in about seven hours from this moment. And uh, he just shouted Jack in, get this vocal down, like, which is mental because he had no music to sing to. So he like, got his vocal down, just like him and an acoustic guitar. He's like, right, get the bass in, got the bass in, so I fucking threw the bass down, get, get the drums in. 
and it was just so fast at happening that you never really got a chance to kind of stop and even think about where you were but like you felt so vulnerable because you were just getting told fucking do this and you're like, oh, and you just started doing stuff and you didn't even you didn't have two minutes to think about what you were doing and then we're back at the studio back in the studio and then we never ever heard the track then we, we literally for that point we left and fucking got in a taxi and left <laughs> and we were like that was mental like it was like the most crazy fucking six or seven hours of the full session and then when we got landed in Scotland we got the voice note through like the the wave file made coffee and cigarettes and it was fucking crazy and we were like fuck this and that this guy's a f- like this is mental that could, none of us liked it at all like and then we sat on it for months and then it was like it was like kind of like it was like do you know like fucking ringing lord of the rings or something that just kind of like <laughs> sits in the background and it keeps calling you to listen to it and listen to it and like everybody was kind of listening to it and it got to a point where like, actually, that's fucking brilliant. <laughs> like, that is brilliant. And it really, that, that was like a true, and at the time, it doesn't feel as much a risk now, but that was like a true risky feeling, totally vulnerable, not knowing what people were going to think, not knowing if it changed the trajectory of the band we were, but we still felt we had to release it because it was just something special. I think you really get a sense of what you're saying there about the process of what led to it. Like, that song it doesn't hang around like it's one thing and then it's on to the next and it's on again. Like it keeps kind of moving mm-hmm. like that in a similar way to what the process mm-hmm. was. Oh, definitely. Well, that's it. I, it's like you can really, you can feel the urgency all the way through the track. Like it doesn't, even when it breaks, it's just a drum solo for like eight bars and it just kicks back <laughs> in. It's not even eight bars, it's 12 bars or something. It's a regular timing. Um, not in a regular time, but in a regular amount of bars. So it's like, it just is this total journey that completely re- reflects the process recording it and the vulnerability that we felt in recording it, releasing it, mixing like every every stage you kind of felt, oh, is this the right thing to do? And ultimately it paid off because it, it kind of forced us to start, exp- especially looking into, you know, like kind of like backing vocals and like really what you can do with, with pitch shifters, vocal effects and then ultimately those kind of steps led us to Somebody Loves You and that was, that was again, that was kind of the version that people hear of that is very similar. It's it's a bit poppier than the demo we originally done, but that that was just that's just kind of the way things go when you're working with like when it's kind of a melting pot of ideas rather than just one person driving it. But the version that you that you hear on the record is very similar to our demo version, and without taking those risks and without. Like that, that kind of thing that you talk about about being at your depth with coffee and cigarettes would have never led to that point which is quite nice That's you were saying you weren't sure at that time with coffee and cigarettes how it was going to change the trajectory of the band it sounds like it changed it in the sense that it made you kind of more free and open to do anything Oh definitely definitely it was tracks like that and it really wasn't looking back now at the time we're in flow the full process kind of led to that. And I don't think we realised how much we were learning in the moment. That, and that takes me back to even the first point you made um, about being in the moment. The things we were learning there were almost entirely subconscious. And it's only kind of as you mature as an artist and you look back at the lessons you were learning, you actually realise the weight that I had on the rest of the record and the weight that I had even in the way that we played with each other, the way we wanted to record music, the way we wanted to sound. Um, it all kind of led to this culmination as as the record. When you're in that experience as well for coffee and cigarettes, what are you, when you're coming up with a baseline for that, are you tapping into what Jack's doing and the kind of feeling of that? Or are you able to kind of feed off like the energy and the atmosphere of that actual experience itself? 
to be honest, most of the the baseline to, to coffee and cigarettes is just genuinely following, like following the chords, all the bass all the way where I run at the end of kind of every second phrase. So like a track like that, sometimes, and it's semi-punk as well, the baseline just follows the chords. And like I see a track like that, that there is so much going on and it's like crazy and up in the air. Like you always, it's bit about me personally, and it's definitely something I've learned on this record. Like I always try and do as much as I can. And in tracks like that, you don't need to do as much as you can. Everything else is doing as much as it can. Do you know what I mean? The drums, the backing vocals, the fucking lyrics, everything's sitting up here. So in songs like that, you need to take a back seat and you need to let the, the song do the talking and just fucking follow the chords. And, it, and it, through all my life, I was like, you can't just follow the chords. That was like my fucking ethos. And that's just ego. It's like an, an entirely egotistical thought process. And, and that's something that obviously Flo taught us as well is to... Like, you kind of need to strip away your ego when you're making a record. And I know it sounds, that sounds, again, like a fucking massively wanky statement. And your ego does help at points because it, it puts you onto the right thing. But sometimes it can get all-encompassing and it can make you trying to make a song about your part rather than about the song. So in songs like Coffee and Cigarettes and Punk, I definitely take a back seat and I just play, like, I just pound away play and just like, play if it needs to be. Yeah, play for the song rather than playing for the ego. And that's... That's something that definitely this record's taught me as well. That that is ultimately people don't care about a bass part. Like <laughs> as much as it pains me, and like sometimes they do, but mostly they don't. Like do you know what I mean? They care about the song. They care about the top line melody. They care about the beat. They care about the rhythm, and they care about being able to sing it back and it being accessible to them. So with a track like that, it definitely is. It's it's time for the instruments to kind of take a back seat and let the song do the talking. And I, f- I feel everything kind of weaves in and out each other pretty tastefully with coffee and cigarettes and that is that is down to the producer Jacks Max of the song because I know it was quite a hard one to get in a place and with, with um, Tony also Tony Hoffer mixed that track but Inflow produced it and Inflow got a co-write on it because he did he really did kind of show us the way with that track you were saying there that you know the bass line kind of has to play for the song but if you think about someone like all your friends or even Juan Belmonte both of them the bass line's the thing that the crowd's kind of singing back Oh, definitely. Well, that, that's it. We'll see all your friends. That was actually built around that baseline. So it's like it's almost like the style, the way that you write the track directly affects like what can kind of take precedence. So that the baseline was the first thing we had in that track. I was kind of in the corner of the room, just playing to myself. Like I don't even think I was plugged in. And in, in flow was about maybe like fifteen meters away from me over there, and I just played like boom, 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 boom. And he was like, he stopped everything in the room. He was like, what was that? And I was like, how the fuck did he hear me? <laughs> I was like, I was like, sorry. I was like, I was just playing this. And he's like, no, no. He's like, that's cold and that, that's cold. Get over here and that, record this. I was like, I'm not plugged in. He was like, you know, got a phone like. And I was like, oh shit. And I've still got the voice not on my phone. Him talking me through, like, play it again, play it again. And I'm just keeping playing it. Like, fucking Is that what terrified. he uses the interlude on uh, the EP? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, it was Jack again. He, he, he kind of masterminded those. He'd always kind of been a big fan of interludes and getting his see behind that curtain with a band. Um, so he kind of spent a long time putting those together. We just kind of went through a bank. He, like, we always take voice notes. Like, we're fucking idiots and we forget everything. So, like, we've all got, like, lots of voice notes on our phone, like, riffs, beats, just kind of us saying ideas to each other and stuff. And that was, I just, I went through. And they all, it's cool as fuck because they all say, like, the address. Like, a voice note on an iPhone says the address. So, so it'd be like, 112 LA Boulevard or something it would be like and then Inflow started talking so it was fucking so cool 
so he gathered those together by that's the that's the interlude that's there and that's literally the moment that that got wrote as well which is really nice that's crazy oh definitely so that that song was built around the baseline so you can kind of take precedence in that and like and really kind of put it in the forefront so it's really it just it is it's just you need to write everything to the song everything's different every process is different yeah was what that was done in la did you say yeah so you're in you did new york la london is that the three kind of locations where the record came together and glasgow as well okay yeah um so it's like it was quite nice the kind of journey through through the record because when we first got signed and we found out we were going to LA, it was like it, it was like you know like your sixteen year old self dream was being realised. It was like oh this is going to be so fucking good. It's going to be like I don't know like you kind of think it's going to be like a holiday because like before when we were recording it was like literally we went we had the song we had the parts somebody pressed record you recorded it they took it back that was the song it was done. Whereas this was like a much more kind of arduous kind of like vibe extraction process in LA. New York was very similar. Then when we were in London, that was a much more like refined process. We were in London with Tony Hoffer, Rich Costey, and Richard Woodcraft, who's the mixing engineer in the Warner Studios, but also like just an absolute legendary guy. So we spent a lot of time once we came over for the States in London and Glasgow, kind of refining all these like vibes and ideas and tracks to an extent. Like some tracks got completely that we wrote in LA got completely re-recorded in London and Glasgow. So whereas inflow was kind of like snap, 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 right, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. When we were over with Costa, he was super efficient. He knew exactly what he wanted when he wanted it. It was almost like you had an appointment to do your to do your part and like kind of say your piece and then your appointment was over and it was time for <laughs> and that was like it was quite clinical and then when we got with Tony that was like everybody in the room everybody was having a laugh like good friends kind of cracking jokes like it was a very happy kind of process it was like sometimes it wasn't like the most efficient process and like but just for kind of the isolation early in New York and then even to the Costa sessions, when we came over to London with Tony, it was like really kind of like bringing the band back together, getting everybody in the one room, kind of refining these ideas that we'd had. And, and also Tony kind of taught us to find our own feet, like find our own way of doing stuff. And like, you know, if you, if you wanted to put something on the track, he would sit back and let you try and put it on a track for four hours. And then see <laughs> after the four hours, when it, when it didn't work, it would just be like, told you it wouldn't work and then you go again and it was like it was such a it was almost like a cleansing process from from the original kind of sessions in New York and LA because they felt very not totalitarian but they were you didn't feel like we were even behind the curtain at points like it just felt like you were just you were like a sample pad (laughs) like you know like it was like whereas Tony kind of brought everybody back together everybody had lunch like do you know what I mean it was really like You'd have a few beers, you'd have lunch every day. It would be these massive kind of group moments. And I really feel that then transpired onto the record as well, like for tracks like Glasgow and Sing for Your Supper that are totally about camaraderie, your best mates, about being there together. I really feel there was no other guy to kind of do these tracks apart from Tony. Do you think what you were saying about LA as well, where you kind of get caught up in it and it's a bit crazy, not fully in control all the time, does that kind of tie back into what you were saying about the studio being a place where there isn't any ego? Like, if you kind of have that experience, yeah. does that kind of completely remove oh, ego and just get to the raw stuff? A hundred percent, definitely. 
that's the kind of place that that you maybe don't feel like you're in control of everything. Um, and, and that's good sometimes. Like, it's good to not be in control. Like, it's really, like, sometimes you can strangle something if you hold it too tight. Do you know what I mean? It's like a pigeon, you know, you need to hold it at just the right <laughs> kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you need to hold, hold it or, or you either kill it or it flies away. Definitely. And the, the, the destruction of ego in those sessions definitely led to some great points. But it also led to when we were back not have, like being like a rudderless ship for like six months because we felt we couldn't create ourselves anymore. But then once we came back through the back end of that, we kind of found our feet again and kind of realised that everything that was done was done by us, even if it was an extractive process to get it. So once we'd kind of almost like healed from that, we kind of, we'd never kind of felt in better stead to keep progressing. Had you healed when you went into the studio in London? Had that already happened before you went in there? Um, I would, I would say so. I'm trying to think of the timeline. I'm pretty sure we done punk after that process. So I would say I would probably say in London that was the kind of final part of like really realizing that we still had a grip on things. And then we came back and recorded punk. Um, we kind of self done punk. Jack done the acoustic tracks, and that's kind of when we started being like shit. Now we we have our own process as well as like borrowing for other people's processes. So I would definitely say, I would definitely say by London we were. We were getting there. Like throughout all these different kind of recording processes and all the styles that you're spanning on the album, it still feels very distinct and feels very this nuts. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is it no matter what you do, it still feels very kind of you, no matter what? Well, ultimately, like Jack's the kind of wordsmith behind it and it has this very clear idea of what he wants to say. Something, no, sometimes he doesn't, it has a very clear idea of what he wants to say. Sometimes not exactly how he wants to say it, but he kind of always knows the message behind what he's trying to convey, be it like with a mix or like verbally. I, I, de- I definitely feel that because Jack has such a clear message on what he wants to, to kind of show, that it's kind of taught us to kind of think with intention as well. So no matter how much we kind of butter up these tracks or add production or all this stuff to it, as long as our intention's there, it'll always sound like snuts. Do you know what I mean? Because we're all in the, like we are all on the same page, kind of pushing this one agenda. So as long as that that is the ethos behind it, then it's kind of hard to lose that within a track or an album or a EP, whatever. Like, do you know what I mean? That is that is us. Do you think about that kind of core message that summarizes the song quite a lot when you're deep into the process? Is that what you kind of keep coming back to to ensure it's kind of centered around something? See, I actually don't. I don't think so entirely. I know Jack definitely does. But when it comes to parts and that, he's, like we're also like in a band. Obviously, you kind of always need like the choir master, who has the vision of what they want, and it tends to be the main songwriter. And then everybody else slots in with their personalities and their ideas around that core idea. And sometimes you speak about it, but sometimes it just naturally. And it, you normally find it's those moments where everybody's on the same vibe anyway, subconsciously without even speaking about it that that's the, the rawest, kind of purest form. And when you get it like that, and it's, not, it's actually not a lot of hard work, it's when you start overthinking parts and you start being like, oh, I'm trying to intend to do this with this fucking guitar line. Or that, that's when shit starts to get a bit convoluted and, and it leads to sometimes too much discussion as well. Kind of just leads, not in an argument, but like too many different ideas in the one pot kind of detract for the, the main goal. I mean, it maybe it goes back to what you were kind of saying about LA again earlier. 
that if you're kind of that caught up in the process, you don't have time to overthink. You are just getting straight to the raw mm. thing. Definitely, definitely. It's kind of, it all kind of works towards the one thing, definitely. Can you put like measures in place when you're working in Glasgow to try and achieve a similar thing where you don't overthink? I think we all just try and stay as frantic as we can. Like if anybody's <laughs> ever sitting, no, they're genuinely, like if anybody's ever sitting, if we're sitting for five minutes in a guitar part and it's not coming, it's like, right, get the fucking guitar off, right, put the bass down, like move away from that instrument or, right, fuck it, pull that out of the, this amp that you always play with and we'll plug it into this old fucked speaker. Do you know what I mean? Like, we can kind of, kind of consciously all stay away if you can see, and we've known each other for that long, that you can you can literally see the look on somebody's face change as they start to overthink something, and you're like, nah, we just need to fucking pull the plug. Let's, you know, it's like flatliners. You just have to like <laughs> pull the plug and just move on to the next thing. And then when it goes back, sometimes maybe the bass line will inspire a, a totally different guitar line. Then you take the bass line away, or like a drum pattern will kind of uh, provoke a melody. And then you take the drum away, and then so so we kind of keep consciously stripping back, and kind of, or or you record like say, or take away the kick drum, and you have to record the kick drum on a tom, and it just gets you moving and gets you doing, putting your hands in places they wouldn't normally be. So we're all kind of massively conscious of that, and that is definitely reflecting back, like that is a hundred percent influence that that kind of showed us those methods. It just like make you feel uncomfortable. Like I played with a plectrum before I went to. LA, and he just didn't let me play with a plectrum for three weeks. I just wasn't allowed to. There wasn't a plectrum <laughs> in the studio. Do you know what I mean? Like just things like that, and it just means it, that you stop being able to overthink and you stop being able to think about a part because you're just really trying to play as well as you can with the materials that you've got, rather than the things that make you comfortable. Yeah, I mean, it comes back to like that Bowie quote we were talking about. Once you're in the deep end, eventually, after a bit of time, you become accustomed to that, and then suddenly, what was the deep end is now your comfort zone. And you keep progressing and progressing, and it goes on and on. A hundred percent. Like, do you know what I mean? You just become like a stronger swimmer, and like, no matter what kind of current comes against you, you can just always push against it, and you always kind of have the confidence in yourself to push against it rather than just give in and drown because nobody else is going to <laughs> save you when you drown. Do you know what I mean? There's no lifeguard sitting up there to fucking pull you out. It's like you either swim or you got to drown. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot. What can happen in the next three years? Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 